You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Jonathan Parkers, who is the founder and CEO of Safe Havens. Jonathan is a leader and innovator in the recovery industry. Jonathan owned one of the largest continuums of care sober living companies in Northern California. On today's show, we talk about what leadership skills should a startup founder have? How does one secure funding in an unfriendly investor sector? What metrics do investors in an impact-focused startup used to consider if it's successful? Are there any laws or regulations on the horizon that will help drive sustainability? And how is tech being used to curve the homeless epidemic in America? This and much more in today's episode. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm super excited. Right now, we're filming live at Sapiens, which is an impact investment hub here in Menlo Park in Silicon Valley. We have an amazing audience here. The room, you're going to hear some questions from them later. They might laugh. They might applaud. They might, they're going to be involved with this interview. As we start, can you give our audience a little bit of background of your career up to this point. Sure. At first, I want to thank you, Sean. This is an incredible opportunity. I want to thank everybody for coming today. I see some friendly faces in the audience. There's some people I'm probably going to get to know. And this actually is a perfect you know, month, perfect venue for me right now. My career has been not one of typical Silicon Valley. I'm barely educated, came out of Flint, Michigan as a kid in a foster program, multiple names coming up as a kid, was jump-started into the military because I lost a scholarship into Michigan playing baseball. And luck would have it, I ended up fighting in a war that I didn't want to be in, in Desert Storm, and, and came out fully addicted to, to drugs and alcohol. Lived on the streets of San Francisco for the better part of the last six or seven years struggling with addiction, homelessness, and really just couldn't find my way. And in treatment, I landed a sober job. And that sober job was with 24-hour Nautilus at the time. And I ended up at Sutter Street in San Francisco of all places. Now, here's a guy from the Midwest coming into Sutter Street 24-hour fitness, which is dubbed as a bathhouse. Hold on. Sutter and Montgomery? (laughs) So no, Sutter and Van Ness, okay. where it was originally. And they sent me down there to show me how to do tours and stuff like that. And I say, yeah, I open up the steam room. Much to my chagrin, I was surprised at what I saw. And uh, that was the jump into the commission sales background. I'll answer your question this way. Every job I've ever had, never had a safety net. I never was one of those people that took a salary. I was never one of those people that played it safe. Every job I had was commissioned 100%. And they were always these critical startups. 24 Hour Nautilus was at the precipice of trying to prove that Bally's gyms locking you into a 12-month contract and all the women weren't in makeup on Stairmasters. They weren't all on Stairmasters. And they were trying to brand themselves as a health and wellness. And I got to be a part of that. I sat right next to Mark Mastroff and we launched this whole corporate membership thing. And I became one of their key players, moved around, went to all the different clubs, had an incredible, incredible journey with them. From there, I moved into recruiting. Funny story there. I walk in, I'm touring. Somebody says, you're born to do this, Jonathan. Technical recruiting. Like, I can't even turn on a computer. I don't know what you're talking about. Silicon Valley, 
It's like Rome. It's like the place to be. It's like being a sports agent for the brightest and smartest technology people. I'm like, okay, I'll come in for a day. Let me just walk around with you and see what it's like. They take me into this conference room and they start talking about programming language. They start talking about Java. And are we talking about a cup of coffee or are we talking about something else? Because I don't know what you're talking about. A couple of months later, I was running a team and I was launched into my career that I'm in now, which is staffing. And I've been in Silicon Valley staffing engineers and building startups for the last, oh my God, 15 years. That is my story. Okay. But with that, you now have a startup and there's, I believe, eight employees at your startup, all working without pay for a dream. And there's only one way that it could happen is if there's a leader leading them. Can you give us a little bit of insight on leadership quality, how to be a leader, how to be that person that's leading that team? I don't believe people follow managers. People don't follow that. They follow a purpose, a mission, something greater than me. I think I do a good job of describing what we do. We solve addiction on a very high level. We fulfill a gap that doesn't exist, bringing technology to an area that is mainly done by word of mouth, that's in jeopardy of being corrupt. And the staff believes that I'm not afraid. They believe because I've, my, as I mentioned before, my career is one of no safety nets. And I think that it also, I'm available. I think that to every one of them, we're all working multiple jobs. They've got kids, they've got lives, and they've bought into this mission. I think it's about finding people that truly buy into the mission, not we're going to get rich or we're going to have this great exit or we've got this really cool technology. It's not about that. It's about can this team execute together? And I think that they believe that if we weren't made for each other in the beginning, we are now. Just for our, our audience out there, because we did talk a little bit about your background to this point, but we didn't talk about your company. And without that context, there might be a little confusion. So can you talk exactly what your company does before going to the next question? Sure. Thanks for asking. Seacaven is at, the, at its very core, a B&B type platform that helps people in transition that are looking for sober living, temporary housing, coming out of homelessness, or alternatives to incarceration. They're able to find where they're an open bed. Does it fit their criteria? Whether you're a caseworker, parole officer, or a mom, a husband, or a wife looking for a family member after treatment, alternative to treatment, eventually perhaps an HR person. Currently, we don't have that type of activity in that arena. And so at the very core, we are able to provide on-demand availability. What's available right now? There is nothing out there that exists that does that currently. I know it sounds weird. You, got, you can find a bed for a vacation. You can find a bed for an apartment or co-living, but you can't find a bed if you're trying to put your son or daughter in a sober living, peer-based environment to keep them sober. And then beyond that, we provide a wraparound technology, which is based upon AI. And I think that's our loss leader. And the AI platform helps to bring a community of services, just like what's happening here tonight. There's a community of people here to support you or me or just what we're doing. Right? I think they're here for you. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know me long <laughs> enough not to be here. <laughs> and I think that ultimately community is what solves so much of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we bring a community of services to where they're right there, where you can find them. You don't have to ask, hey, if you talk to Dell, Dell might know, or if you talk to Steve might know. That's how it's done today in this critical environment where we have 151 people dying a day 
of addiction. So between addiction and homelessness, those are the two biggest crises that face our society today. And yet we don't apply the type of technology that we would apply to brain surgery or to fly a a space shuttle to the moon. It's readily available to us, but we don't use it for that. And that's what we do. We take technology that already exists and we, we put it in the hands of people that can help people save their lives. While you're developing this technology, did you have to pivot at all? And if so, how did you lead that team in the new direction? I'm surprised the entire room isn't laughing. Of course I had to pivot. Are you kidding me? We have these grandiose ideas, right? We're like, I know what I'm going to do. They're, they're being respectful. Come <laughs> on. You're like, I came out, I remember three years ago when I founded the company in 2018. It's, I know what I'm going to do. This is so simple. We got to go right now. And I, I truly believed that we were going to be funded in a couple months. We were going to be in our Series B by 18 months. And I had done all the research and Airbnb did it. Uber did it. Why can't we do it? And I ignored the fact that the months and years before that, when Airbnb was putting people on mattresses first, Airbnb was first putting an air mattress in a room and trying to get you to pay for that. So to answer your question, yes, we've pivoted and we continue to pivot. And I think that when people are looking at companies and they're looking at a team, I've been told this and now I believe it. They're looking for people that can prove they know how to pivot, that they can make that change. I'm just going to give this really cool story. It's not mine. Netflix is one that I use with my team, and I clearly lay out to them. Netflix started off focused on delivering a movie to your home. And what a great idea. This was wonderful. Everybody was loving it. And now they have their own network channel. Imagine being the first person to pitch that idea. They're like, why would I want to do that? There's Disney, there's HBO. Like, why would I ever want to do that? Yes, we pivot a lot. Okay, now the development of your app from day one till now, how many iterations, or I'm guessing there's multiple iterations, and were they incremental? Were they big leaps? There's so many companies out there that they plan out everything before they go. But were you step by step, or how did that go? I honestly had a story. I had a business plan. I had it all because I was new. I was a new entrepreneur. Nobody wanted to hear me. Great job. A good idea, kid. Come back again at another time. So I had as much as I could have. I had direction. I had a market. I knew the market. But when it came to the technology, the answer to your question was I struggled with that a lot. I struggled with, let's go offshore. I'm a technical recruiter. So I knew that I could find technology people. As soon as I did that, either you really bought in, but you wanted half my company, or you really bought in, but you didn't really do the development. You knew somebody that did, like the investors. Oh, this sounds like a great idea. I think I'd like to invest. Okay, so we do three or four meetings, and then I find out you're not actually the investor, a couple investors, and you'd like to introduce me. But And so there's a lot of that I learned on the ground. I got my heart broken a couple of times. I lost my own money offshore, two o'clock in the morning for six months. I feel like I'm already pot committed. So I've got to stay with this guy as he's testing the platform. And I'm believing that maybe I'm, because I'm not an engineer, maybe I'm not being clear with what it is I want. And I find out that ultimately this guy was never going to be able to deliver on a simple clone Airbnb platform a lot of changes during the development process. So with that, one, I'm guessing there's no repercussions. There's no way of getting your money back. When was it too much? And you're like, 
Don, we're breaking up. You broke my heart. We're separating. As soon as I found a new girlfriend, right? You don't ever quit a job before you have another one and you don't leave a girl until you have another one. So naturally, I, I, <laughs> I had found some other developers that were on board. Should I give you a minute? That's my best material. Yeah, I found some other developers that were like, you know what? You should have never done this. You never should have done that. And of course, everybody tells you, I wouldn't have done it that way. And I would, well, really? How would you have done it? I would do this. I would, oh, that's interesting. I talked to a couple other people. Oh, I would have done it this way. I would try it that way. Talked to a couple of interns, thought about a hackathon a couple of times, threatened a hackathon to a couple of the engineers, kind of threatened that I'm going to date somebody else. And, and I got a team that said, we can do this and we can do this pretty inexpensive and we can get it done for you right now. And as soon as I, I got that and I started to see some activity, I started going out and doing what I do, which is finding partners, channels, sales, people that were going to get behind this and, and, and help me move this. So the problem that you're tackling right now, homeless and addiction, there's so many data sets for so many other things out there, but the data that's already been collected for this niche, this topic, how is it? Is there a lack? Is there a plethora? Is there an abundance? Tell me about the data. Tell me about your collecting, your analyzing it. I want to be respectful because there's going to be people that I'm going to say, hey, listen to my podcast. And there are going to be people that I want to work with. So I want to be respectful when I answer that question. I think we do the best that we can. I, I like how multiple girls, not a problem. <laughs> data do. is when we get to that area <laughs> where it's, ooh. Let me be PC about that. You don't have to be PC about you know, non-monogamous. Yes. Good catch. We are in the Silicon Valley. Data is everybody wants it. Everybody claims they have it. Some people claim that they use it. How it's collected today is much the same way that the lives of people that are struggling with addiction or in homelessness, it's all by word of mouth or by a caseworker's ability or years of experience. But most of the information is done by repository and it's me asking you, tell me a little bit about what you did today. Tell me where you think you're struggling. Did you use today? Are, is anybody hurting you? And that data doesn't really go anywhere. We, we don't have like masses of data that said this sector of people in this county, in this area, suffering from these coexisting occurring deficiencies, suffer these types of things at home or experience these outcomes. And I think that we're starting, just starting to start to use the word outcomes. What are the outcomes? How do we capture the outcomes? And so I think the part that I'm super excited about with what we do is that when using something like an AI platform, which is what we use, that is a facial mapping, geome connecting. So you're able to tell if what I'm saying lands true with me, if I'm having an anxiety attack, which I am, just so everybody knows. You could never tell, but my, my platform would be able to tell that I'm having an anxiety attack at, as we are talking right now. And you're able to start to use that data across the line so that when this group of people start to interact, they can use the data from before. We use it in Google. We use it in Wikipedia. We use it in all these other areas, but we don't use that type of technology in trying to save people's lives from addiction or homelessness. And I'll just close with this is that in homelessness and addiction, those are shame-based diseases. And so the data is more like reporting on politically or reporting on a county. We suffer this much unemployment or this much homelessness or this much addiction, or this is how many people have died, but we're not reporting on it 
as though we're using that data for useful purposes in the future. And I think that once we get to a place where somebody introduces useful information that says, hey, I can actually use this information and create something more. I can actually create a revenue source in a county. I can create another business based on this data because it's true. It's factual. That's where we are. So a lot of companies, they're able to get product market fit, but they have trouble with go-to-market fit. Where your company is at right now, what's your go-to-market strategy? What wisdom can you share with maybe some of the things that have been tried so far, or maybe competitors have tried and you've taken feedback from? This is the big elephant in the room, okay? I'm just going to be honest. Product market fit, I'm in the industry. I think I know what I'm talking about, that I know what the product fit is. I ran sober living homes. I lived in sober living homes. I was homeless. There's no better person to know what a product fit is. It's not exactly true. Times change. People run their businesses different ways. Some people are successful doing the devil they know versus trying the devil they don't know. Change is difficult for everyone. And so when I'm trying to get a product fit as a business, I have to put myself in the shoes of the people that would be using that product. I didn't want to do surveys because I already know. I didn't want to waste that time. It cost me. By doing that, a pivot occurred. The pivot was this. Right now, the people that found the opportunity of housing these homes have no support because there's no data. So they're all self-funded or dealing with bootstrap funding. They can't pay me for what I offer. So offering them marketing costs at a low rate or reducing their costs in managing their homes, while it sounds great, it's not compelling enough to go through the change. But if the residents, the people that really matter, get a bigger benefit by doing business with us, by having us chaperone them through their recovery in a way that isn't being done at their residence, that was where we found the product fit. Pandora, the freebies. I never understood that. I give a freebie software. Okay, so then we sell advertising on the freebie? That was the only model that I knew, Sean. It was the only way I knew a way to go. What I learned is that by offering free, especially in a marketplace, you start to gain adoption. It becomes a way of life. It becomes the way that they do their life. It becomes their product fit. And the only way to do this in this market for me was to do that. And that's where I find myself right now is providing a service to humanity which is where I started to begin with. I had to go all the way around the planet Earth chasing all of these people. Oh, you should talk to this investor. Oh, if you had this business plan. Oh, if you had this pitch deck. Oh, you're missing this one thing. And if you did that, I'd give you a million dollars. I come back with that one thing and they're like, oh, we don't have any more funds. You know, sorry. And I did that for two years. My best friend's in the room, Del Christensen, and he watched it. He's watching me. My heart got broke a million times. And it really comes back to product fit typically in my experience with the other entrepreneurs I've talked to, and for me, started with where was my passion to begin with. And finding that product fit amongst the industry was about finding partners that needed what I do in order to sell their product. And that's where I'm finding my product fit. So let's go back. You had mentioned investors. There's many investors in the room, and I'm sure they all want to talk to you now. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nobody's left yet. Oh. You've been focused on me. A quarter okay. of my eye. Oh, there are a few have left. Yeah. Okay. It's but, like the seventh inning, right? Okay. But a lot of investors, they have that investment thesis. We raise capital on this. Our mandate is to you know, put it in this sector at this stage of the company. Our check size is between here and here. All these things. And some focus on blockchain, some focus fintech. They have that niche AI. But what you're doing, your niche, is probably something that many, very few investors have raised capital or, or designated to deploy in. So when you're in that niche where there's not those investors out there, how do you go about doing it? From your experience, do you have any wisdom for maybe someone else that's raising capital in a similar situation? I've got the scars to prove what I'm about to say, and I can only speak from my experience. Okay. So I haven't killed it. I haven't, you know, gone into series A funding. I've gotten some funding and where the successes come from for me in, in, in securing this funding is much, I would assume it feels like the same way that an Uber or an Airbnb would imagine even ADP. Let's go back that far for anybody in the room that remembers when there wasn't such a thing as an outsourcing payroll. Imagine the first time you tried to tell somebody, yeah, people would easily go out and outsource their payroll to a third party. Social security numbers, secure information, financial statements. You're out of your mind. There's absolutely no way that business plan is going to work. Imagine going to somebody and saying, I've got this great idea where Sean's going to drive around the city and as a second job, he's going to pick people up and take them to the airport. And so will his wife. Really? Why wouldn't they just call a taxi? And so when I talk to investors about this and they talk to me about their thesis, I said, one of the biggest parts about your thesis, and my mentor taught me this, Marks Kazanoff. And for those that want to talk to me afterwards, he was the first African-American who had a wealth management company in California with managing over a billion dollars. He worked for President Carter in the small to medium-sized business, managing his fund. So his business was called Progress. For those that have been around a while, maybe you know that name. And he taught me something. He said, platforms come and go. Ideas come and go. Investors that invest with a team, oftentimes those ideas fail, but they re-engage that team and re-pitch that team. Hey, I've got something else. Some of your team might be able to help me with this other investment. Make sure that you have a team that can execute, battle test it. I don't have a history of taking a company public or I have doing, doing it for other people at the highest level. I've done it with other organizations, helping them at top level staffing or sales. And I skipped over that when you asked me about my career, but 24-Hour Fitness, which acquired Family Fitness, I was their regional vice president for Mark. Moving into staffing, Paul Kenyon was a little public, publicly traded firm by Brenda Hall, Todd Kenyon. And they were poised to want to move into a larger acquisition. I led their largest recruiting team, creating a windfall of revenue, which is what they needed in order to attract K-Force to make that purchase. And lastly, I started in the mortgage business during after 9-11 and moved over into that and ran the largest call center mortgage bank in California, which was later acquired by Home Savings of America. So I've sat right-hand cockpit driving revenue in order to position a company for merger acquisition. I've done that for other people. I had never done it for myself. It's a long answer to your question, but I'm not going to fit a thesis. I'm not trying to. I've never fit a thesis. And I respect 
investors that do that. They're playing the odds. I'm the wild card. My team is the wild card. This is an industry that when they do look at a thesis, one of the things they look at is what can be disrupted. And when they look at that piece, they say, in this industry, everything's word of mouth. It's disjointed. There isn't a standard. ISO is a standard for manufacturing this, your belt, your cup of coffee. ISO standards, doesn't matter what you're manufacturing, you have a standard. This business does not have a standard. It doesn't, and it'll either go one of two ways. You'll either create the data that creates that standard, or a government will come in and say, we hired somebody that has about 20 years of experience, and they decided that this is the standard, and that's the way it is. I have an example of that, and then I'll move on. When you're talking about at-home healthcare, in the late 70s, at-home healthcare was booming what homelessness and, and sober living is doing. It was unregulated. Anybody could do it. You could open up in your house. You could have three or four people in your home. And all you had to have was a nurse come by once a week. Because it wasn't regulated and it wasn't standardized, you had people signing over their wills and testament to their nurse, suffering from dementia. No one could help them. No one could come in and say, oh, this is, you know, you can't do that. There were no standards. And so the government finally came in. And when they did, all the mid-sized companies and smaller cap companies, usually those people are the ones that do it because their heart is in it, were kicked out. They couldn't afford the change. They couldn't make the pivot. They were holding together anyway what business they had because it's all they knew. The large organizations were either acquired or they were infused with cash. Our industry is facing those two. They're beset by those two conclusions. And that's why we do what we do. That's our mission. Just uh, I got to plug some past episodes. So everyone listening, please go to our archives and check out the interview with Abram Miller on his book, Wild Ducks, where he talks about how he was that guy, never went to college, but yet PhDs were reporting to him his whole life, telling him he, he knew more than them. Yeah, there's always those people that don't fit the mold that excel. But going back to one of the first things you said early in this interview, the biggest problems facing America, 151 people dying a day, addiction and homelessness. How much bigger can this problem actually get? I want to give one person credit. You had Ben Bartlett on here some time ago. Thank you for referencing our archives again. <laughs> I should have just had you do it. I follow you. And Ben Bartlett says it because he has the numbers. And with the economy the way it is after the epidemic, with the rise in unemployment, the high cost of living, California being the largest contributor of homelessness, unsheltered homelessness, addiction being rampant, fentanyl everywhere, putting people in hotels, right? The gap between the lower class and the upper class getting larger and larger because innovation is so much easier today. Investors are infusing money in so many different ways. The government is regulating billions of dollars to be infused into these problems, but the money is going to organizations that are already established, right? So those organizations are sustaining and growing and the money that the people that are getting the services are getting whatever they get. And honestly, I think this problem, we're going to see this problem. I don't know the numbers, not off the top of my head, but what we do know is that the numbers continue to get worse now. And so the death toll, I'll give an example, and again, again I want to be respectful, but Cal, I know San Francisco only because on my, you have your things that you do during the day and I have mine. I work for a publicly traded company called Blend. Blend is a lending organization that created the lending process of the mortgage process. 
from an analog process of following a loan officer around and filling out the paperwork and asking him then where are we and then having him lose documents. All of that has been erased. They've digitized that process. This is long overdue. I was a loan officer, long overdue. That's why I work for them. And then I do this startup. And for me, you need to be on the ground. Four times a month, I go to the Tenderloin between 10 o'clock PM and 1 AM. And I sit with the homeless. I knew about the tent encampments before they were talked about on the San Francisco Chronicle. I knew about what they were offering them when they take them from those encampments. They offer them Brillo. They offer them a tinfoil, a crack pipe, and they give them a room. And they tell them, stay out of the street. This is so that you can use your drugs safely. This is a known fact. And But the papers say, we got 2,054 people off the streets. You put them in a single room hotel with other drug addicts and prostitutes, and you left them there. I'm sorry, but that's the deal. And so if we can get away with that, imagine what else we can get away with. And so instead of giving them a phone, which is what our app does, and allowing them when they're ready to find the services, at least do a check-in, a wellness check-in, incentivize them with a wellness check-in. If you look at the numbers in San Francisco, the fentanyl death has doubled and they're finding them days later. That means they're not doing wellness checks fast enough. It can get really bad. So diving into that a little bit more with your app, daily check-ins, they'd be a way to monitor everyone, but- We don't love the word monitor, but we'd be able to participate in their life. Yes. Participate in their life daily, Mm -hmm. but it'd be tracking maybe government spend as well in these programs if they're working or not. Now, at least from my understanding or my guess, would governments really want everything to be tracked with what they're doing and where the money's deployed? Is there a conflict of interest here? Again, I'm going to reference another one of your archives. You had Steve Schneider on here not too long ago. Steve helped me come to a place because he's done this type of thing before and he works really well with the government. There's a way to frame that which doesn't threaten, which is ultimately by doing this, you put $10 on a $10 problem when they're ready for the $10 instead of $10 across all the problems. You put $10 on a $10 problem, you put $1 on a $1 problem. So if you can measure it, you can improve it. If you can collect the data, you know where to spend the money. And I think that's the most important value that we're trying to drive home. And we're working with municipalities right now, and they're not feeling threatened. They're buying into that right now. This changes the way that their workers work. It allows them to see more people and have a holistic view. Before I meet with Sean, what was happening Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday before you came in? So diving back to startups, mental wellness has been a big topic on this podcast for many of the episodes. Many of the founders that I have on, including people that have sold their companies, investors, and that when I ask them any insights that people at home may not know about the startup journey, they say mental wellness of the founder, how difficult that journey is, how challenging it is, and how people out there don't know. The mental wellness of a founder and the mental wellness on, of the people that we've been talking about, that problem, are there any solutions out there for these groups? And the solutions, are they completely different? Would they be similar? What are your thoughts? I wish that I would have heard that a year ago. You got to listen to more podcasts. I know. As a founder, you're lonely. It feels really lonely. I keep telling that to my crew. I, I Sometimes I'll call Dell. I'm going to call his name out again. I'll call him in the morning. I'm, I'm lonely. Dell likes his yeah. name to be said anywhere. <laughs> I'm lonely. And I can't believe I say those things, but it's lonely. 
Everybody wants something more. Everybody wants to be managed a certain way. You're expected to have the answer. When you pivot, everybody's looking at you, is this real or are you just, it's lonely. And as much as I bought into some of my team members are 100% ride or die, that's not true. It's not true. Everybody has their own reasons. And so I can only reference this, Sean. I was really touched when I came here. This event was was done non-alcoholically. And you downplayed it like to the point where I was like, dude, don't do that. Like it really was touching. And it goes back to what I was talking about around mental wellness. Mental wellness comes because we're mammals. We pride, herd, these we have to be in community. And without that, we suffer. And we live in a world where we're disconnected so easily. And we feel like we can't share. I know when I had my idea, I can't share it with anybody. I'm holding it like this. Like, oh my God, don't move. Everybody's going to find out. Somebody's going to take it from you. There's more money. And the reality of it is the minute I opened up my hand and I started talking to people, half this room is people that I've talked to that are friends of mine. And I just met them in the last two years and they showed up for me. I know that they did that. I know that you want to think they showed up for you. And I know I said that at the beginning, but there are certain people in here that I know that they showed up for me and I appreciate it. No, no, trust me. The other half also (laughs) showed up for you. (laughs) But honestly, for entrepreneurs, this isn't a networking event. This is a community event. And if you kept it that way, I think the room would get fuller. I don't think it always is about networking and about funding. I think it's about those topics you just mentioned. If I was a as an entrepreneur, if I'd have heard somebody else's answer, because I want to hear somebody else's answer about the loneliness and the mental state and what do you do to keep it? I just started reading and I talked to my mentors and I talked to my sponsor and I talked to my friends and I was honest and they gave me little tidbits and I took it seriously. Today, I think I'm fairly mentally fit. I think so. For our audience at home, a couple episodes to refer to Chuck Orbita. He's the former center of the Pittsburgh Steelers when they won the Super Bowl. He's now a mental mindset for the entrepreneur or Super Bowl mindset for the entrepreneur. That's it. That's his pitch. And if you think about it, when you're face to face with 350 pound guy and you're like, I got to take him down, you got to be mentally pretty strong. Also, Sam Wong, check out his episode and Raz from Flow Water. That was a very touching episode where he was talking about Friday night and you're in the office program and not because you have nothing else or nothing else to do, but you have no one else to see because you've spent four years just building this, what you're working on. But question for you, Jonathan, there's so many parts of what you're doing that the government and tech play a part of. Are there any laws and regulations that are on the horizon that are either going to make things easier, more difficult? Are there any laws or regulations that you're facing now that are making things difficult that you wish you would change? What could our audience listen in? What insight can you give them on what's hindering this, helping this, what's going on? So on the addiction side of things, there's uh, associations. That's it. There's no standards yet, but there's associations. NAR. National Association of Recovery Residences. And there's a big win that just happened, which is, I was like, oh my God, thank you. This was like a great, wonderful thing that happened, which is in the continuum of care in behavioral health, there are standards around psychomeds or if you're, if you're being prescribed medication or if you're going to see a therapist, these people have to be certified and, and all that exists. But then when you get into after treatment and you get into, okay, so now you're going to go home and you're going to live your life, there's nothing there for you. Right? There's no standard. You're expected to figure it out. Like your question, 
Is there anything out there for entrepreneurs that you're expected to know how to do a pitch deck? People will give you templates for that and so forth, but they don't give you a template on how to stay mentally fit. And trust me, I don't care how good your product is. If you lose your, can't swear, if you lose it, it doesn't matter. If you sack the quarterback, the game's over. And so that was what my team was talking to me about. One of the things that happened was the federal government finally, after I don't know how long, finally just announced that sober living is an evidence-based continuum. Now, all that means is that we accept that actually is an evidence base, that if you go into sober living and you stay, there's evidence that you are moving forward and we can start to collect some type of continuum results. We can actually see, we can track that, but we don't have anything that does that. So it's of no use. There's nothing that does that currently. People come in, they do an intake, they write it down and they stay and they pay their rent and they're gone. So we're not tracking any of that. So what helped us was that we were already, when they check in, they come in digitally, we track when they left because they pay through our platform. That makes it really easy. You don't have to write it down. When they come in, we every time they pay their rent, I partnered with the three bureaus. So now when they pay for the bed, they get credit. Their credit increases. When they come in, they automatically have access to a, a resume bank. So now if they're looking for job opportunities, they're able to go ahead and apply for jobs that are readily available for them. We, we got an audience. There's people trying to barge through the door. I mean, we're at full capacity, everyone listening. We have two guards at the front and and looks like some other people are trying to get in. So okay. everyone, I'm, we might not even be able to continue people, but everyone listening, we will persevere. So Jonathan, question with what you would consider success for this. Your investors consider success. What would be a big win for? Is it to go IPO? What do you want to happen, the investors to happen with this? The easiest barrier, I could probably educate an investor unless they were somebody that was already a private entity, probably not a VC. There's already private equity buying up treatment centers. That seems to be the space that private equity likes to play. And there's quite a bit of activity around buying up six or seven treatment centers at a time. And to make it clear to the audience, treatment is like going in to the hospital for cancer and getting the tumor cut out and then send you home. That's it. So that's all you're going to get. What we're saying is if you went into treatment for a broken leg, they give you a cast. They also have therapy afterwards. You go into physical therapy afterwards and you go through a whole process. If you came in and had cancer, they give you equipment. They send it home with you. You check in. When you go to treatment for drugs and alcohol, you get kicked, you're done. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sound right. If we know that you'll pay for housing because you'll do affordable housing and you'll create a tax credit for that, but you won't do it for people that want to live in a house temporarily while they're putting their life back together. But as long as you'll stay poor, Sean, we'll go ahead and keep paying you. That doesn't sound right either. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's where that answer led me. So that's where I'm going to leave it. And then there's time just for one more question. So I'm going to ask you, what milestones are you hoping to hit in this next year? And then after that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? Got it. Now I know what you asked me. I'll answer that and this. So our go. exit is that we would prefer to go IPO or be acquired 
by a much larger player. Bundle it all together. If you were apartments.com type of feel, right? We'd like to see that. We're not exactly sure where we'll go with this, to be perfectly honest. And I know no investor wants to hear that, but I'm not looking for a quick exit for a quick buck. I think that there's too much to learn here. And I think there's a lot more that has to be done. And so we do have the team that's going to be able to change policy with this data. We already have that team in place on the staff. We already have the people that have been working in public policy around addiction for over three decades on the team, leaving their firms to come here. That's a question that, that, that we never can answer in the investment pitch. We're just, we're open to merger acquisition is what we're open to, depending. And then the second part of that question, milestones. So our milestones changed as we pivoted. The long game is that a lot of right now, a lot of my partners and people I do business with are working with municipalities and government that have a lot of money focused on solving the homeless issue, which goes hand in hand with addiction, of course. It goes hand in hand with systemic racism, which obviously I care about. And I'm the data tool for that. I'm riding along shotgun with them. And we're in final RFPs and RFQs with stuff that is as large as $50 million. Those are in play. Some of the people in this room are aware of them and have brought me into those. Our milestones are different. How many people this month during Mental Awareness Suicide Month, Suicide Awareness Month, we want to have a minimum of 2,000 users by the end of October, meaning users are afflicted people registered on our platform. Whether they're a homeless person that took the assessment, the AI assessment, or they registered on our Find a Home platform. That's a milestone that we want to hit right now. We've got, I'd say, three different municipality opportunities. We want to double that by the end of October as well. Fantastic. And if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Easiest way is just my first initial, last initial is jp at gocaven.com. Pretty simple. Gocaven.com. Fantastic. We're going to have that information in the show notes. And before we open it up to Q&A from the eyes, I got to thank Del Christensen, who made the introduction that allowed today's interview to take place. I have to thank Sapien for allowing us here to record this amazing episode. And I have to thank the audience for coming all this way to attend. Let's. Can I make one? Of course. I just want to make one, if that's okay with you. For me, I'd like to dedicate this part of, of the podcast to a dear friend of mine. And his name was Sean Patrick Parkhurst. He was my brother. He was my best friend. And in those early years, he took me in as a foster kid who tried to kill himself. And this is Suicide Awareness Month. And he killed himself about two decades ago after I became a Parkhurst. I dedicated a lot of what I do today to his memory. I wouldn't be here today if he hadn't changed my life, brought me into his family and made me a part of his family. For Suicide Awareness Month, I want to dedicate this to him and and as well as to my ex-wife's dad who recently took his own life a couple of years ago, Curtis Sittenfeld. So um, thank you. <clears throat> wow. I'm not really sure. If anyone wants to find out more information, the information to, for Jonathan is going to be in the show notes, along with Sapien and, and everything else. It'll be at the website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Once again, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. If while listening to this, you learned anything, you enjoyed it, please go to iTunes or other podcast platforms, give it a five-star rating, write a review. It helps us get the word out. It helps us create great content like this. And I have to give a shameless plug for myself. If anyone's looking for an investment banker for mergers acquisition, raising growth capital, 
Also email me, just go through the website, my LinkedIn or my emails, sf at globalcapitalmarkets.com. And with that, Jonathan, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.